All right, hello everyone and uh, welcome to the first podcast of the Neuen Gamma Generations. Uh, my name is Tom de Vos, I'm from Belgium um, and here to introduce you Miss uh, Svenja Ganso-Frauwald, president from the Young Committee. Hello. Miss Franzi Henning from the Archive of Neuen Gamma. Hello everybody. Miss Anna Buka, educator at Neuen Gamma. Hi. And our special guest today, Alexander Bancic from uh, Croatia. Hello. Hello, hello. Nice to see everyone. We are meeting uh, digital today. We are, what is the date again? March 6th already uh, for the first podcast. Uh, we're doing it digital because everybody is in different countries, of course. Uh, I'm in Belgium, but we have people from Germany. We have people from Croatia. So uh, it's nice to get everybody together on this uh, wonderful sunny day. Uh, how is everyone feeling today? Great. Very good. Thank you, Tom. All right. So this is the first in hopefully what will become a series of uh, podcasts about subcamps of Knowing Gamma. And uh, it's nice that we're all here today because we all have a bit of a, a special link, I think, with Knowing Gamma. Uh, me, myself, I am the great-grandson of a, a former inmate of the main camp of Neuen Gamma, um, but I think for uh, for everybody, they, they have link. Maybe we can just uh, give a short introduction. Uh, maybe Svenja, you as our president. Yes, thank you, Tom. I am uh, the granddaughter of um, two survivors of satellite camps of the Neuen Gamma camp. All right. And uh, Franzi? Well, I am the great-granddaughter of a persecuted social democrat who was not in a Neuengamme concentration camp, but in Fuhlsbüttel, which is um, like a prison part-time concentration camp in Hamburg. And, well, now I work in Neuengamme, so that's <laughs> probably the biggest link. Um, All right, great. And, yeah. And uh, Anna, you and work you are our public relations officer for the Young Committee. Don't forget that. Yeah, I, I always tend to forget. <laughs> yeah, she's the one doing all the work, actually. We're just here for uh, for the show. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and Anna, you work at Knowing Gammon as well, right? Yes, I work in Angamon as um, an educator, let's put it that way, to describe all my different um, tasks and uh, kinds of work I do and... Um, but I do not have any personal connections to non-gamma. Okay. I started as a volunteer and then stayed, <laughs> basically. Okay, so now you're living in Germany for a few years already, but originally you're from Bosnia. Exactly. I, I, I grew up and lived my whole life in Bosnia prior to that. And I guess maybe this is a little bit where this personal connection or personal interest in this kind of history comes from. Um, you know, post-war conflicts and um, so on. Indeed, correct. And that's why uh, we'd love to invite you today, uh, because uh, we, you will have a lot of interesting to say about Spadenstrassen as well, of course. And Bosnia is not that far from Croatia uh, as well. Indeed. Okay, so that's where Alexander comes in. Hello, Alexander. Hello, hello. Yeah, I'm the grandson of an inmate of Neuengambe. Okay. So, yeah. And he was in, in Spaldingstrasse as well? Right? He was in Spaldingstrasse, yeah. Okay, uh, so you're also a descendant indeed. And uh, mm -hmm. in real life, I was told you are a drama teacher. Yes. What yes, about that? I'm, 
I'm a drama teacher. I work in the local theater for 20, 25 years, uh, working with uh, children and young people doing theater. Okay, so nice. <laughs> yeah. All right, good. So uh, let's get started. Uh, so the main topic of today is, of course, the Subcamp Spaldingstrasse, uh, which is located in Hamburg, actually not that far from the main camp of Neuengamme. Um, and maybe we can just start off with a, a bit of an introduction about what was going on in, in the satellite camps, um, because it's the first time, of course, I think it's relevant that we talk about it, how this kind of work. Um, can maybe, Anna, you give us an introduction about how how does this thing work or used to work? Well, um, the concentration camp on Spaldingstraße was a sub-camp, as you said, or a satellite camp, um, as I'm probably going to be saying, <laughs> um, of the Nine-Gamma concentration camp. And the satellite camps were a phenomenon that developed later on, like in the last few years of the war. Namely, from 1942, uh, there was an increasing demand for concentration camp prisoners' labor from the Ministry of Armaments, German Ministry of Armaments, and the German Armaments Industry. And um, this prompted the establishment of a large number of satellite camps near factories and construction sites and wherever else the prisoners' labor was needed. And most of them were established actually in the last year of the war. So by 1945, you know, when the war ended, um, Neuengamme had more than 85 satellite camps in the city of Hamburg, but also all over northern Germany. And if we look at Spaldingstraße in particular, this camp was established in November 1944. And, That's quite um, late already then. Hmm? That's quite late in, in wartime. Indeed. I mean, most of these camps, as I said, were established um, late, so in the last year of the war, but this one particularly late, and it only existed uh, over the winter, which also contributed to the horrible conditions that... Um, you know, prisoners had to live under in this camp. And it was established in the part of the city uh, called Hammerbrook, which was a restricted area at the time, meaning it was um, almost completely destroyed in the Allied air raids in the summer of 1943. Yeah, and that uh, was a big prisoners thing, right? were... Yeah. Hmm? That was a big thing, the, the Allied bombings. Hamburg was bombed during... The, the last year of the war, uh, significantly, yeah, nothing. Yeah, there was a there was a huge or most significant, uh, let's put it that way, uh, air raid or series of air raids in the summer of 1943, um, that is known as Gomorrah, and uh, where you know parts of the city were almost obliterated from the face of the earth. And Hammerburg, this part of the city that I just mentioned, was one of them. So. Uh, the SS decided to, you know, house prisoners there in one of the few remaining buildings. Um, and it was a seven-story former tobacco warehouse, and this is where they were housed. Okay. I, I've been to a museum in Hamburg city center a few uh, time ago about uh, Gomorrah. It, it was in the, the former Nikolai Kirche, right? Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. That's 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 exactly uh, the, the exhibition that deals with that uh, particular topic. Okay, maybe that's good to add it in the show notes uh, because it's <coughs> really worth visiting. Uh, because in the basement there is the museum, and then on the top of the tower in, it's a burned-out church in Hamburg, mm-hmm. and you can mm-hmm. still have a look on the skyline, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and so then Spalingstrasse is not really far from from the city center there, then. Mm, no, I mean. It's not right around the corner, but it's, yeah, it's not far from there. Okay. Exactly. And it's a place that you can still visit today? or Yes and no. Uh, I mean, you can visit the place, but of course it's very different from what it used to be. Um, today it is uh, basically a hostel. And... Um, mm, so one could spend It is the not night. the kind of memorial that you would like, that you would expect to see there. Okay. It's not, you know, it's just a little tiny exhibition. Okay, good to know. And so we were at the, the, the history part in uh, November uh, 44 when the camp was founded. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the goal then of, of why was it founded? Do you know that? Um, well, most of these camps were established in order to have prisoners clear rubbles, recover dead bodies, um, dismantle unexploded ordnance without any safety provisions or shelter, needless to say. Um, and Spallingstrasse was one of them as well. So this is a kind of work that prisoners did in this camp. They also worked for um, for the Reichsbahn, which is the German national um, rail, railway. And they repaired, they had to repair basically bombed out railroad tracks. Okay, and so Alexander, if I understand correctly, your grandfather was one of these inmates then. Yeah, <clears throat> yes, yeah, he was he was uh, in Spaldingstrasse, and uh, listening to Anna now, uh, maybe the reason is because he was blacksmith, so maybe he was doing this uh, repairs of of the rail railroad or something. Okay, oh, yeah. and uh, how do you get from? Croatia into into Germany during wartime then? <laughs> Unfortunately, very easily. <laughs> um, my grandfather was a, a member of the of the liberation committee in uh, in his town in uh, Savicenta in central Istria, and uh, you know he was. Uh, as I always say, he he was not uh, a partisan because uh, the partisans were in uh, <clears throat> in the in the woods. They were uh, like fighters with with um, you know with uh, weapons, and my father, uh, my grandfather, was not uh, a part of the partisans, but he was uh, still living in the town with his family. But doing some special operations, which included propaganda and uh, maybe diversions and some some kind of uh, this kind of work. I, I don't have so much uh, so many information about this. Uh, just a couple of them, um, so I don't know really what what he was doing. But uh, he was always in uh, in danger mm-hmm. because he was living in the town. And um, one day, as uh, as I heard, uh, a woman from from the town 
uh, betrayed him and also all uh, all the other parts of the liberation committee and um, the, um, the german soldiers came for him okay and and when was this then was it uh... it was in uh, august uh, 44 wow okay 15 of august and uh, it's interesting i found afterwards that all the members of the committee were taken the same day okay and how was yeah. it in 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 wartime croatia because i of course have more info about my country of belgium what happened during the liberation part of the war but um was it close to liberation itself then or um how how was the occupation during wartime um well it's uh, it's interesting because uh istria was at that time part of italy okay and as we know as we know italy um the fascist regime uh, collapsed in 43 so only at that time really the war started in uh, in that part of of europe in <clears throat> you know the the resistance the <clears throat> sorry the big operations of the resistance just started in <coughs> in 43 so august 44 it was not so much into the the liberation still okay yeah and uh, uh who liberated croatia then or is uh it? so the yugoslav army uh the partisans okay yeah and when when was the liberation then the in may uh 45 okay oh yeah that's that's late and when was yeah. your um grandfather deported M Uh, so uh, my grandfather so he was um, imprisoned in august 44 and then uh, as as they told me he was uh, transferred to porec which is a town on the coast, coast of istria mm -hmm. then to trieste and from trieste to dachau camp okay in september uh i think september 24 uh, i think and then from there um not sure which date was but uh, he was transferred to hamburg and neuengamme i can later tell you which date i have yeah <laughs> thank you <laughs> oh, that's i have somewhere actually. but i didn't uh, remember so that's fine that's uh, why, I'm, why i'm here yeah okay <laughs> So you did research and at the archives then, Francie, uh, about the grandfather of Alexander? I did, yes. Okay, now I'm curious about the actual date, to be honest. Uh, should I say it now? Well, he arrived at Dachau at the um, 25th September 1944 and was there until the 22nd October 1944. So just a very short amount of time until he got to Neuengamme and then later died at Spaldingstraße. Okay, that's that's uh, um, interesting to know. And um, just now I'm curious, how can you find it in the archives? Because you have so much material, how can you find it so fast? Fast? <laughs> okay, <laughs> and much material. Oh, good that you say that. Um, well, we have a database. And we have some material. We do not have much material. I can, I think we planted uh, 
on a different place in our podcast, but I can already say that most of the original documentation from the concentration camp was burned at the end of the war. It was destroyed by the SS because they wanted to cover up their crimes, obviously. They know that they did wrong. And, well, we do not have much, but we have some original documents, and uh, especially of documents of the persons who died before the really end of the war. Um, we can track at least their death where we were. We have um, the death books of the camp infirmary, for example, and we have the death certificates that have been made after these um, these dates. Okay, yeah. and this is then part of most of the, the research that you're still doing today, more than almost 80 years after it happened. Yeah. We uh, still try to fix the holes in our documentation and get new information every day. I think um, since now, uh, in the last couple of months, I have discovered two new names of prisoners, which is great, I think, because it was more like a coincidence. Um, their relatives get in touch with us and they had uh, like their arrival and their prisoner number because they had letters sent home and we just had the number but not the name because they survived so uh yeah because they got in touch with us we now have a name connected with the number and that is great um, okay and that's how you so found then the information about uh what's, what's the name of your grandfather alexander yosip yosip is the croatian name and giuseppe is the italian name okay because he died as an Italian. Ah, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually the name in our archives are quite diverse. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and the name of uh, Giuseppe Bancic as well. We have, I think, three or four different kind of spelling in our documents. And we do not have much documents. I think I found, uh, I would have to open now my database, but maybe I think I found about four documents from him. Mm -hmm. So that's all. And yep. uh, all of them are written with different names. Yep. But yeah, our database is uh, quite intelligent and I am uh, capable to filter out. So um, then uh, Istria is a very, very peculiar re uh, region then during wartime because first it was in Italy, it was not occupied, and then after Italy fell, it, it was occupied, and then after uh, the war, a lot of changed. Maybe it's good to, to zoom in about Istria uh, for a minute. What do you think? I'm curious. I think that's actually a really good idea, because um, when uh, <coughs> I got uh, to know Alexander and his story, I, I must admit, and it might be typical for many people having uh, grown up in Germany. I didn't know a whole lot about the region, uh, it, definitely not during the time of yes. World War II. And it made me curious that, uh, and this might be something Alexander will tell us about later, that, for example, the grave of your grandfather is also in the um, Ehrenanlage for uh, Italian um, 
uh, prisoners uh, in Hamburg. So yeah. that's special too. So I um, I started doing a little bit of reading and here I'm definitely inviting you, Alexander, to correct me because I just did reading. I didn't do um, a bunch of uh, research. Is that uh, Istria has has had a very um, uh, a changing history. I mean, there. Yeah. When I look at the last maybe uh, two hundred years, diff- uh, um, different different uh, uh, countries or empires ruling the area, and uh, and a diversity of of of, of people um, or uh, languages speaking. Uh, in that region, uh, there was the Austro-Hungarian rule up to the end of uh, World War uh, One, and which was then followed uh, by that period of uh, Italian rule. And and what um, real I found uh, uh, very important in regard to your grandpa's uh, story was it was a period not just of Italian rule, but uh, they tried to Italianize uh, the people. I mean, people were not no longer allowed to speak Croatian or to have uh, their culture exhibited in museums, and uh, that must have been um, really terrible. And it was the period when your grandpa was growing up. If I remember correctly, he was um, born in uh, 1910. Is that true, Alexander? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and then. Um, to, to to have to Italianize their names, as you said, that uh, that really must do something to a, a people. And um, I, at the same time, from talking to you um, earlier, I think people in that region still have um, a, a close connection to the Italian language, despite that uh, time of oppression. Maybe. Uh, even if it takes us a little bit away from uh, the focus on the history, how how is that situation now? Maybe because it's interesting to many of our listeners. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, um, Istria is officially a biling- bilingual uh, region. So it's Italian and Croatian. And if you go around uh, through the through the towns, you will see the street names in both languages. Uh, also in, in the city where I live, in Pula, you have streets uh, named on, um, with names of Italians, uh, Italian people living here before the Second World War. So it's, um, well, we try, we always try to, to have this um, balance, balance of cultures. Um, but it's not always very easy, um, especially during the 90s and afterwards, where uh, you know the nationalism um, you know started to grow. So it's always in danger this kind of um, multicultural uh, living. 
but for example all the main the main towns where there is um, more italian people they have their uh, communities they they call italian communities so a cultural centers of italians and uh, so yeah and of course if you go to a town like rovini you see it's a very um you know it looks like venice so there is a lot of italian culture but also um maybe it's interesting uh, to know that um before that time of of um world war 2 or before that uh, or before the nationalism uh, started um you know the people mixed and uh, you know no one knew who who they were if, if they were italian or 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 croatian um i think just the language was the difference uh, so there was a lot of interesting things happening uh, for example um, because also the, the the difference here in istria in in history was um, that all the slavic people were in the village and in the town were italians okay so, for example, if a villager um, earned some money and transferred his family to to a city, they started to speak Italian and they changed the, the name in Italian. And, for example, now we have families with the very specific uh, last names, which are uh, a mix of slavic and italian <laughs> so it's 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 very it's it's a it's a complete a complicated story which we tend to simplify now because now we have italian we know now who is italian who is who is croatian but before that it was not Im- so important that's so interesting wow so i i immediately imagine a good pizza but with another topping then is that is that how you do it from culture <laughs> eating or <laughs> uh well it depends we have istrian style of pizza which is with uh with the local prosciutto sausages and uh i don't know some other things which are typical for for example the truffle mushroom uh, which is very known here in Istria. And what's what's the nearest uh, airport? Because uh, I like the sound of that. <laughs> the nearest airport, uh, Pula. It's, okay. We have yeah, we have an international airport in Pula, okay. which in in winter is really closed. <laughs> so you know there is more training of of pilots than uh, really uh, lines that goes anywhere. But in summer, it's very, very um, alive. Okay, good to know. Well, uh, it's it's <laughs> uh, in, so interesting to know that Istria has such a, a rich background in uh, um, and how you can handle the different cultures in the same location. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think um, uh, um, to connect with what Svenja um, was uh, telling, uh, I think when the the Italia, Italian uh, rulers so when uh, when istria became part of italy <clears throat> in the 20s uh, it was um as a uh, was a big shock because before that really um 
even in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was a multi-ethnical uh, empire, um, somehow this balance of nations, uh, ethnicities, you know, maybe not so successful, but but it still uh, worked somehow. Uh, when the Italians came, they tried, you know, tried to make just one nation and to wipe out everything else. And I think this is a, a one big um, reason, maybe, why the the resistance were so was so uh, hard when the war started because uh, here people were not fighting only against uh, nazism fascism but also to gain their um, their um, national identity let's say like that it's it's uh, it's the same thing that we have seen in in the region where I live in in Flanders, it, you see that it has been the same background. Eh? There was uh, a lot of yeah polarization between the Dutch speaking, French speaking part of the country, mm. and uh, during the war time, the same thing. Dutch speaking, there was a movement uh, trying to to separate and then become an independent organ uh, country. To be honest, uh, and you see that during war time, it it escalated firmly. Um, so it's uh, interesting to see that these things happen on so many different places. Yeah, yeah. And it's is interesting also because uh, I was doing the research for my grandfather and my family. And you can find on the internet the, the official uh, newspaper of the, of the Italian um, kingdom mm -hmm. from that time. And you 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 can see a lot of these articles about Eastern families wanted to change their names to their or, uh, Italian original forms. So okay. you know, and then I found my family also there and saying, you know. Uh, Josip Bancic and his family wanted to um, to change their name to Banci, Giuseppe, and okay. yeah, yeah. and so on. So it's 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 very interesting how it was presented. Yeah, yeah, of course I can imagine. Yeah, and then yeah. somehow because he was in, in the liberation committee. Uh, and he actually got betrayed, as we've learned already. Um, yeah. He ended up first in the camp of Dachau, and then he got transferred to Neuengamme, where also yeah. uh, my, my great-grandfather was at the time. Um, and then he went from Neuengamme to Spallingstrasse. And I think Anna already told us that it was mostly to uh, clean up the damage from all the bombings. Um, maybe it's good to get back to that story again, uh, because... I think it's interesting to know a bit more about Spallingstrasse, what was the day-to-day the -day operations there, um, what was the, the health conditions, that kind of stuff. Maybe, Anna, you, can you deepen that out for us? Of course. <clears throat> well, you know, the daily lives were more or less, so to speak, a standardized procedure in concentration camps, you know. Um, people would 
get up with sunrise or I mean here in the north way before sunrise um, and you know the prisoner the survivors told us it was more or less a you know day was between sunrise and sunset so they would be working really all day long their day would start with um, you know half an hour that they had to get ready for work and then they would um, get counted you know they would have a roll call and Spaldingstrasse because it was part of a large complex that was bombed out but there was like a courtyard where um, they could actually carry out these roll calls you know these procedures where people had to line up in order to be counted and then they would be divided into different work details and they would be marched off to work because of course not all the prisoners worked together in one detail as I mentioned you know there were there were various also locations where they needed to you know, do this, uh, perform this kind of work that I described so far. So this was basically, you know, the departure of the, of the, of the details, and then they would be working all day, and then in the evening they would come back, and they would be counted again before going to sleep or being being sent to bed. And um, on some details, there was no food whatsoever during this, uh, during these working hours, and Spalingstrasse um, was. As I already mentioned briefly earlier, it was uh, really extreme because it is um, it had the highest death rate of all nine gamma satellite camps. Because in these five months of the camp's existence, 800 out of 2,000 prisoners died. Wow! So it was yeah, it was a really, really extremely high death rate. And on the one hand, for sure, you know, one thing that played a huge role is the fact that the camp existed only in winter. You winter know, in the winter, of yeah. course, is the most difficult time to be working outside and you know these people did not have any proper clothes any protection anything they were just given whatever you know there was and so on the one hand there was that then you had a horrible you know strenuous physical labor you had complete lack of food complete you know disastrous lethal living and working conditions lethal sanitary conditions um which all sort of caused these uh, number of deaths to, to skyrocket. And in, in such a short existence, indeed, because it was only a few months then? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so they, they had to work, actually, basically, if I understand, in the streets just to clean up stuff and, and fix railroads. Um, or <laughs> Yeah, and, and then they would just sleep in the building that is currently a hostel. Where you can still sleep. Yeah, I mean now, now it is a hostel. Back then, it was. I mean, it was also damaged, uh, but it was still standing, and it was very convenient for the SS to establish a concentration camp in this building because, as I said, it was a restricted area. You only had access to the building from one side, so it was really easy to guard it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a canal on the back side. It's like a natural sort of fence. You know, the people could not really escape in any way there was no out no way out um and yeah they, they had to work and also except for you know clearing rubbles i also mentioned that earlier they had to for example defuse unexploded bombs okay and you know prisoners who were not skilled in this whatsoever you know and they were not even really they were just sent to a certain location and told to to start working and you know one one wrong movement uh, with a shovel could, you know, 
get the thing to to explode. So it was really, really dangerous. And prisoners call these extremely dangerous work details Himmelfahrt commandos, which basically is like suicide mission, more or less. They were used, used as a cannon fodder, you know, so. Okay, and how does one get assigned to Spaldenstrasse? I presume that you're first in the main camp of Neuengamme. Um how, how do you get in Spaldenstrasse then? Mm. Well, there were different details. I, I'm not sure if all the people always went to Nangame. Okay. Uh, I think they were also simply taken to 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 the places where where they needed to work because Nangame, the main camp. Now, when I say Nangame, I mean the main camp. Yeah. Um, it was also, you know, especially in this time, like late '44, early '45, was absolutely overcrowded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, people were needed actually somewhere else. They were not needed in the main camp, so they were just taken there where, where they were supposed to be. And um, how well? I mean, as most things at that time, this was done really arbitrarily. Yeah. You know, there was a group of prisoners, and there's a Spallingstrasse established, and we need to clear the city, so off with them, sort of there. Yeah. Um, you know. Okay. And when that one is full, then we send them somewhere else. I mean, this was all. As you know, it is it is really interesting because on the one hand it was so so meticulously documented, and on the other it was a complete arbitrary mess. Yeah. So um, yeah. And if we talk about meticulous documentation, I'm I'm immediately thinking about Francie again uh, with the archives because you've already shown us a bit about. Uh, some archive work that you found on Spallingstrasse. Um, is there anything else available? There is. We have um, like a whole wall in the archive is just built for folders where we collect everything about the different satellite camps or subcamps. So we have one folder in particular for Spallingstrasse. Um, all these folders are very diverse. They were kind of used to um, do our exhibitions and to just thematically collect um, what we have. So there are copies from different sources that we have on different um, places in the archive as well. For example, we have the archive of Hans Schwarz, who was a former prisoner and who started to collect um, everything he could after his liberation. So we've got a whole wall for his documents as well and the correspondence that he had with other survivors where they talked about Spaldingstrasse, for example, and where they sent each other um, drafts of maps from the different subcamps and stuff like that. So we have that like at two different places, one in the folder that is for Spaldingstrasse and one at the Hans Schwarz archive, just to give you a rough imagination of how uh, well-organized and tidy we sometimes are. <laughs> um, well, it's fine. And we also collect, like, if there's a book written about Spaldingstrasse, there are some books. Uh, I think we can give them in the show notes. Um, then we have some copies from them in these folders. Or we have... What I find interesting, and maybe you can correct me there, is being uh, Spaldingstrasse experts. 
we also have some documents there, uh, correspondence from the cemetery of Olsdorf with the camp of Neuengamme, um, talking about that some of these prisoners were also used to bury the dead bodies of the um, victims from Hamburg and that they were had to be given extra rations of cigarettes and alcohol to do the work because they were working with bodies that have swum in the river Elbe for some time and stuff like that. So horrible work, really horrible work. Um, so this is like the one particular folder we have about Spaldingstraße. But we also, of course, collect a lot of testimonies and interviews from survivors. And for Spaldingstraße, we have around uh, 40 written testimonies. Okay. So stuff like that. On 2,000 people, that's, I think, still a lot of information then. It is. And is there something that, that comes to mind or that pops out that you found that's like, this is worth mentioning? Uh, do you mean about testimonies Yeah, now? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Well, there's one in particular that just... Uh, I, I was going through these and this one just popped in my mind because it had the wonderful um, headline of Christmas at Spaldingstraße. And it was written by a Danish prisoner. His name was uh, Kai Dahl. And yeah... I do not know. Do you want me to like read it? It's like one page. Or should we just put that in the show notes? Well, tell well? us what it's about and then we can indeed add it to the show notes because I think people will want to read it too. I think that's better. Well, it's really, I think it's, first of all, it's very nice written, I think. And he just describes how they were in between this very thin line of not try, trying to not give up hope and still seeing how everybody around them suffered and trying to accept that they are in in the courtyard of death, so to speak, trying to accept that they are in this situation and they probably won't make it out alive. Um, and then he just, well, he just describes a few years later how unreal this Christmas was at 1944 at so when they had like a very poor Christmas tree, but they had a Christmas tree that says, with like a cardboard that said Merry Christmas. And he mentioned a pea soup where the peas has been forgotten. I think that's how he write it. And how even at Christmas the people died, but they were singing and all the nations were singing and even the, um, I think he talks about the uh, Soviet prisoners that were singing the loudest um, and trying to, you know, keep up your hope with this mixed feeling and emotion of still being so close to death. And that was very well described and I really like that uh, yeah, I like it because it's so unreal, but you can feel his emotions so good. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting goosebumps <laughs> just you talking about it. It's, uh, wow. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, and, uh, me too. It's one of the things that fascinates me most by working in an archive. You just uh, stumble over documents like that and they just hit you and you're like, okay, yeah, well, I'm 
doing this every day now and it's getting like a regular job to research people that are dead but um they just get so emotional and personal uh, just out of nowhere mm -hmm. i think it's important that we keep telling these these stories and like the the story of uh, of Josip, eh? your your grandfather alexander was was he still uh, alive in christmas of 44 no no he died he died on uh, december 10 of uh, 44 okay so so he was very it it was a short time in spaldingstrasse really okay and do you um because well uh, i think we've all here done a lot of research to uh, in regards to our family members and what happened to them and um, i'm just wondering about your story how how did you get to know about your grandfather and what happened and and how did you get in, in touch with his story yeah um you know in in the family we didn't talk about a lot about him so his story was not known uh to to the members of the family um i think my grandmother didn't didn't have any news until the, the early 50s <clears throat> wow. i think it was i think it was um as my father says that i think they transferred the remains from one uh cemetery to to another or maybe it was uh, the um, because now he's in the uh, memorial, Italian memorial uh, cemetery, yeah. so I think it was the time when it was done the the the, the memorial cemetery. So I think the process was that um, my grandmother should uh, she received some documents from Germany and it it's an interesting uh, story because um when when the news came that something came from Germany about um my grandfather all the family thought that he is returning that oh that God. maybe he's returning that he's alive so it was a you know after so many years but but the hope was still there uh, but no it was just the the um, the documents about his death and his uh, the, the transferring of the of the remains so they didn't uh, know for for five six years what happened yeah what they were say? still hoping that you know he's somewhere he will come to, probably they also thought okay he's dead mm -hmm. but when when these documents came it sparked again the, the the hope that maybe he's he's alive and returning mm -hmm. um yeah maybe, maybe i can just add because i have the documents from the cemetery uh with me i can just add the date he was or his remains were transferred in july 1947 so maybe that's fits the date you are referring to maybe. maybe maybe it is i don't know i don't know really the the date the and the the year it was just uh, you know 
what my father was telling me that there was this time when something came to the it it it, it, it didn't came even to the address the home address but it came to the um, the local government okay so they 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 mm-hmm. called my grandmother to come to see these documents so it was all very you know um, not clear what's happening mm-hmm. so um, cool i'm sorry i'm shocked yeah 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 it, it is um and afterwards you know my i was i was very small when my grandmother died she died in 1980 i think i was six years old so i didn't have the possibility to talk with her mm-hmm. about my grandfather so everything i know i knew was from my father and he knew anything really um he didn't even know in which camp he ended um and and the date of of his death and so we didn't really know anything and um i started to to research very late uh, you know, I was already maybe in my 30s and um, really I found uh, the information in some books, Italian books, Okay. Uh, because the Italians were so much organized and um, and they wrote a lot, a lot and they collected a lot of information about people missing because they were t- talking about missing people. Uh, because the family didn't know where where these people ended. Um, so there are organizations also in Italy about that. Unfortunately, as he as my grandfather was an Italian citizen when he was um, he he died. Um, I think the Yugoslavian and Croatian part they didn't really you know he didn't matter to them so yeah. i think this is also why there is a gap of information okay ah, yeah yeah true and so yeah. you did you started doing the research um in books and then you found more information about him yeah yeah i found where he where he uh, where, um you know all the the um, uh, how to say the um, the path, the path that is so f- from um, from Trieste to Dachau and uh, his number, his prison number, and then uh, from Dachau to Neuengamme and uh, where his remains are. Yeah. I found this short, you know, short uh, information, and then I um, I asked the Arlsen, um uh, office to find something more so they they send me also the you know the, the transport lists and the death certificates and everything that they have okay yeah indeed the, the Arlson archive is a very interesting archive to get in touch with if you're doing your own research yeah. about your family member or uh, if you're a descendant 
it's it's very interesting to get in touch too because they all yeah I think they have a very large digitalized database already where you can mm. do lookups by yourself. Uh, but what fewer people know is that you can also get in touch with them and ask for more information about specific people, and it will take a bit more time. But um, yep. you will get a lot of interesting info. And I, I think, Francie, are you guys working together with with them as well uh, from the archive knowing Gamma? Well, from time to time, uh, sometimes they email us if we have more information. And of course, we always, whenever someone uh, gets an archive request to us and we answer it, we also suggest to them to get in touch with the owls and archives because they just have a, such a large collection. I think it's one of the largest collections about this whole topic, not just concentration camp inmates, but also forced laborers, um, which are very hard to find documents about. Yeah. So, yeah, they are heroes. And should be uh, contacted whenever you look for okay. something about That's your family. Certainly worthy of, of adding all the information about the different archives in the show notes. So yeah. if, if uh, I want to get more info about my family member and he or she was in, in Knowing Gamma, then it's good to contact Francie, I think. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I can't promise that it will always be me to answer because sometimes, uh, you know, I've got two students also to help me do it. And uh, but yeah, we always love to get archive requests and get to get in touch with other descendants because we try to collect everything we could about former inmates. Yeah, that's so cool what you're doing in the in, in the archive work. Um, I find it astonishing. I've been visiting it many times, but actually I'm curious how many requests you get on a, a yearly basis in, in Knowing Gamma. Wonderful. Um, it really depends. And I'm ashamed I haven't counted them on a yearly basis. I can say that we get around, let's say, one or two every day, uh, which does not sound much, but... Uh, it adds, it adds up. Yeah, that's um, 400, 500 per year if you would count it. Yeah, and sometimes it's even more. I mean, some of these requests are um, like concerning more than one people. For example, when you sent me a request, uh, I have to research about 30 people Correct. Sorry. in one request. Yeah. But <laughs> so <laughs> um, it really depends. And um, when there are documentaries or specific dates approaching we see the requests rising up for example around the 27th of january the weekend after that we suddenly had 20 requests more on monday wow and we were all like where's that coming from but yeah of course everybody watched some documentaries about uh, the holocaust and then starts to remember oh, i have a family history maybe i should contact the archive. Mm -hmm. And what I really like is they always ask about, can you give me the folder of, and I'm like, yeah, no, but I will ask my database. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, around it, I guess. Okay, and the archive itself, it is in uh, the memorial of, of Knowing Gamma where the camp used to be, right? Yes, it is one of the uh, larger buildings that have been, built by the prisoners and where the prisoners lived 
and died and yeah it's a nice place to work in actually Mm -hmm. it does not sound like that when you see it from that perspective but it is yeah and can one visit it just or should you make an appointment or it's best to do it digitally oh it depends i mean I like to have appointments, but if you are a visitor and you just want to see what we have, you can just uh, tell one of our staff and they will phone me and say, are you available quite right now? Do you have time? And most of the time I say, yes, give me the name and give them 50 minutes to wait so I can look everything up and then they come in and I will do a short presentation and get them copies of the documents and stuff like that. So, yeah, if you want to research a specific topic, please get in contact before that and make an appointment. But if you're just like a descendant and want to uh, find out more, then you can just come by. Okay, so good to know. And so you did research about uh, Josip, the grandfather of Alexander as well. I'm interested, actually, Alexander, how, because you did the research in the books first, did you go f- a step further? Did you visit Neuengamon or Dachau or Spaldingstraße? Um, I, yeah. <laughs> I, um, I think it was in 2003. Um, I made um, an inter- international project, theater project, with some uh, colleagues from uh, Berlin. And then I, um, I just uh, took some time off after afterwards, and went to Hamburg. Okay. I had I had two days, so I didn't visit the memorial uh, site. I but I visited the um, the cemetery. Mm-hmm. So I went to to find to find my grandfather. And also had the possibility to uh, to see uh, Spaldingstrasse. Okay. Also, uh, but at that time I think there was no hostel. Okay. Um, and I I uh, I had a room in a hotel in the street, but down the street <laughs> from the from the place. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I had this this possibility, but it was too short to to really uh, investigate more on the place. Okay. Yeah. And, um, how how was the experience to be there in the same street um, where your grandfather used to be? It was strange. <laughs> it was strange because um, you know I was trying walking down the street, walking the streets of Hamburg to imagine what he was seeing uh, you know trying to imagine um hamburg without all these new buildings and how it looked like at that time and uh, i was trying to imagine what he felt how he felt uh coming there yeah you know because indeed he didn't survive and and your grandmother yeah. died at a when you were still at at a young age, um, so most of the information you've received from from your father that that's correct, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And and um, all the information I got was really you know black and white. 
you know, just information. And what I missed was really, you know, the feelings, the also the character of my grandfather. I didn't know him. Even my father, he didn't, he didn't oh. knew him because he, uh, my father uh, was born in January. So a month after the death of his father. Okay, so your your grandmother was pregnant with your yeah father yeah. when your grandfather was taken away. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And there's also an episode. So when my grandfather was taken from the town where they lived to a town 20 kilometers away, my grandmother, pregnant, went to visit him by foot. Wow. Yeah, so, and that was the last time she saw him. Um, but this is all information that I got afterwards. Yeah. So visiting Hamburg really gave me this this input to try to find out who he was and you know his character. So so I uh, interviewed my aunt. She's uh, older than my father, okay. so I asked her to tell me something about my grandfather. Yeah. Yeah, so so that gave me a little bit more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And by when the, at the time when you when you visited Spaldingstrasse, did you um found more information there? Was there already Is there an exhibition today at Spaldingstrasse? Can you visit it because a lot of subcamps they have museums now where you can have a lot of more information um is it is it present today anna do you do you mm -hmm. know that yeah um yes uh, there is a really tiny exhibition at the hostel uh so you can walk in and and take a look i think it's four panels um offering information on the camp so it was, you know, once it became a hostel, when, when these people purchased the building, um, they decided to document the history and, and put it on display for, for their guests and for, for the public. So it's not a part of the main exhibition, really, or it doesn't have like a proper memorial, but a small, tiny exhibition about the camp uh, exists. Okay. And was it already there when you visited Alexander? No. Okay. No, when I was there, it was just... Um, uh, plaque or how it says the the sign the memorial sign on the building okay but you can you could not enter the building no. okay and today you can then you can book a night at the at the hostel and stay and look at the panels or can you just walk in and have a look yeah. as well <laughs> and do you do you plan on doing it sometime alexander hopefully hopefully maybe this may Ah, will you come to Hamburg in May as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm planning to, finally. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Is your father also coming with you? Uh, probably not. Probably not. Um, he's 70... Ah, uh, 70-something. Um, yeah, and he's also very afraid, you know, with this pandemic situation mm. still. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, for those who are listening, of course, by May we mean the large commemoration, 
that is going on in uh, Noingama to commemorate not the the liberation but uh, the the end of the of the camps, of course, which will take place at always at the beginning of May. Um, and it should have been already two years ago that we would have uh, a larger commemoration to um, to remember the the seventy fifth anniversary. But due to COVID, of course, it didn't happen. Uh, so I think this is the the second or the third time that we're going to try to meet and get everybody back together. So uh, I'm I'm traveling to to Hamburg as well in May. So I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing everybody again. Uh, and and I think I'm really looking forward to meeting you in real life, Alexander, as well. <laughs> yeah, me too. Okay, so nice. So is it is it uh, correct if I say that the um, it it had an impact on your life? The story about your grandfather? Yeah, yeah, a lot. Uh, because I, you know, I felt a gap, a, a generational gap. Uh, and, um, and, you know, uh, when uh, when we were in Yugoslavia, we, uh, we always were, li- were listening about the Second World War, the partisans, the heroes. And... Um, uh and from time to time i heard from my family like oh yes our grandfather was was a, a fighter for liberation mm. but nothing else and then uh from the 19s where to be a partisan was not so cool anymore <laughs> okay from that time it was like oh yes but uh, you know, he was forced. So the 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 story changed. And how is he that? Was... Because that, that's very particular. Yeah, <laughs> because the ideology of the of the state changed. So, uh, so 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 the story changed from being heroes to being, you know, bandits or something like that. Um, or okay, they were heroes, but we are not talking about it. Uh, so, so the wow. the story of my grandfather changed from you know being a hero yeah. and dying for liberty uh-huh. to being forced to fight for liberty. Wow! Yeah, yeah, it's a big turnaround. Of, yeah, 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 yeah. So I didn't want to um, um, accept that. I wanted to to research, yeah. But also, you know, I um, you know I have two pictures of him, two photos, um, and I tried really to connect to 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 you know to see what's the what I have, what I inherited from the, this person. Mm-hmm. Um, what is different? And so, you know, I I really wanted to connect. I I really felt this this gap, this 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 hole that uh, just was missing from my my life. Mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah. 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 You see it in 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 our family. It's the same thing. Uh, my grandmother, she grew up without her her father, and you see that it it um, it has an impact on. Um, on your life, you see yeah. the the when the first time I got to know Ingama, I was I was eleven years old. 
together with my grandmother visiting the the grave of where my grandfather or great grandfather passed away um and that that makes a mark in it yeah, i think it it does change like well the fact that we're all here today talking about it and taking mm. our time to invest in it i think makes the point exactly um do you think it has an had an influence in in your daily life as well as a drama teacher and a storyteller uh probably yeah probably um you know uh, not having him in my life and also not having the story of his life in my life uh, made me connect to his father so my grand grandfather um because at at that time when i was researching my grandfather um i got some stories that my grand grandfather used to tell uh, the children from his village and other people and this was a kind of me connecting with with this older generation mm-hmm. and uh, of course the first idea that came to my mind was okay i as a theater maker I want to put on stage these stories. Okay. So I I made a performance of oh, wow. the story of the stories of my grand grandfather. And it you know, it's there are funny stories, <clears throat> you know, the scary stories yeah. of, of the villagers going drunk from the <laughs> from the um you know the uh the, the name Anna Gostionica kako se kaže Gostionica <laughs> like um like an inn like yeah. a pub local pub yeah. okay pub, local like, pub. okay yeah so uh villagers going drunk from uh local pubs and seeing all kinds of stuff in the branches of the trees and uh so you know my my grand grandfather talking uh telling these stories to kids to 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 scare them a little bit and yeah and this is also this is a kind of part of our um uh heritage cultural heritage here in istria you know we are uh proud of these stories of vampires of uh, ah, yeah, okay. werewolves and and so on so it's it it's interesting yeah <laughs> okay cool oh it's it's uh it's so cool that you you created a theater about your history that's uh i think uh, one of the uh the dreams that svenja has been talking about as well right <laughs> Yes, I actually um at some point uh, talked to Alexander in an email about uh, this how good it would ha- be to have uh, some kind of stage performance about uh, the perspective of descendants and uh, Alexander uh, immediately knew a, a a professional term for this a documentary play and okay. um that's still something I think the young committee should uh, f- f- focus on and then you Alexander also said well storytelling is actually yeah. maybe also a very good uh, form of um 
of uh, sharing the stories of uh, of prisoners, especially from from your area. And um, I think that's also a very very interesting uh, way of thinking of how to share these stories. And yeah, uh, um, yeah. Uh, I also. I'm a professional storyteller and um, I started a project uh, with uh, currently I'm I'm doing uh, Istrian folk tales uh, but it's a project that I want to to continue in the next years with other um, topics so when I was also thinking about my grandfather and his story and how it is important that someone is telling his story. Mm -hmm. um, I was thinking really maybe to, as a part of this project, to make a storytelling event with um, stories of people died or not, or survivors of concentration camps. Which is something so very cool. different from yeah. folk tales, yeah. but I think it, storytelling can also be uh, a good tool to to you know transfer these stories to the next generations. Oh wow! You should you should teach us. <laughs> As you're a professional <laughs> storyteller, uh, yeah, that's so cool. Okay, I would love the idea of. Um, doing something like that and maybe the perfect time will be in two years eh? the, when it is yeah. 80 years after everything that happened uh, that would be become very relevant or is it three years I don't know heart. three years yes indeed oh, <laughs> I, I always say two years because for me personally of course in, in my village uh, the stuff mostly happened in August 1944 so uh, when I talk about uh, the remembrance, I always look at uh, the four years, but of course in Knowing Gammon it was already the year after that in, in 45. All right, wow. Uh, I, I It was wonderful hearing the story of you, Alexander, and having you here in, in our podcast. And I think we're already coming to the end of our, the very first uh, edition of, of our generations, uh, Knowing Gammon Generations podcast. Um I think uh, I can honestly say, uh, for me, it has been a wonderful experience having uh, all of us together and talking about uh, Spalingstrasse as the first uh, satellite camp that hopefully in, in, in a, a series of many more to discuss. Um, I, I think, um, yeah, if we have any stuff that we are forgetting or wanting to add, uh, now is the time, but uh, I propose that people will have a look at the show notes as well. We will add a bunch of stuff and for information, maybe more about personal story of uh, Josip, about Istria, about Spalinschassen itself, uh, the link to the hostel that you can visit the panels. Um, so yeah, uh, it was wonderful having everybody here today and then uh, I would like to thank you all. Uh, so thank you, especially of course, Alexander, for being here. Thank you. Thank and, you for uh, giving me the, this opportunity. Yeah, and thank you, Anna, for giving all the wonderful insights what you know about Spallingstrasse. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> okay, and then uh, Francie for giving us a glimpse of uh, how the, the wonderful archives work. I'm sure you will get a lot of requests in the coming weeks. I just hope so. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to uh, yeah do this again. All right, and then... 
fun. Cool. And then, of course, Svenja, thank you for being here, our wonderful president, and uh, giving us the idea of uh, doing all this. So, uh, and of course, from myself, it was wonderful to be here as well. So, I guess this means goodbye. Thank you, Tom. Uh, to you for uh, being a wonderful facilitator of this conversation and uh, doing all the work behind the scenes uh, to get us recorded. Well, it's uh, it's nice to be part of something like this. So wonderful. Okay, and maybe we will meet each other physically in uh, May. Uh, of course, I will, we in kindly invite all all our listeners to be present there as well, and perhaps on a next generations meetup or what might be the second series of the Knowing Gamma Generations podcast. All right. See you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.